The Old Testament reading for today is Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4, that's the very last book of the Old Testament. And then our New Testament reading will be Luke 9, 1 through 6. This is our sermon text, Luke 9, 1 through 6. First we will read Malachi chapter 4. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Let us go now to Luke chapter 9. We will read verses 1 through 6, our sermon text for today. And Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless the preaching of it this morning. Here in Luke 9, 1-6, we hear of Jesus granting power and authority to his twelve apostles, so that they could cast out demons and heal. And after granting them this power and authority, he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. I have three observations about our text to present to you. Firstly, this was the Apostles' first mission. Secondly, this first mission was, in some respects, an unusual mission. Thirdly, this first mission was a momentous, or we might say a significant and consequential mission. First, let us see that this was the Apostles' very first mission that they were sent out on. This was their their first solo mission, we might say. It was back in Luke 6, 12-16 that the twelve apostles were first named. Jesus had been gathering a following ever since He returned from His time of fasting and temptation in the wilderness and from the start of His public ministry. But in Luke 6, 12, we read, "...in these days He went out to the mountain to pray." And all night he continued in prayer to God, and when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, 
and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. So Jesus had many followers, but these twelve were set apart as special and prominent. Uh, They alone were given the title Apostle. And so these twelve spent their time following Jesus and learning from Him from that day forward. They watched Him minister to people. They saw Him perform many miracles. They listened carefully to His teaching. And they learned from Him in in this way, knowing that one day, uh, the day would come when they would be sent out as His representatives. After all, that is what the word apostle means. It means delegate, ambassador, or messenger. And so when Jesus chose these twelve and gave them the name Apostle, they must have known from the very beginning that the day would come where they themselves would be sent out by Jesus to function as His special ambassadors or messengers. And dear brothers and sisters, there is a sense in which this is true of every Christian. Every Christian is a disciple or learner of Jesus. And every Christian is called to be a kind of ambassador of Jesus too. No, I'm not saying that all Christians are apostles. In just a moment we will emphasize the very, the very special position and place and role and office that these twelve possessed. But every Christian is called to not only learn from Christ, but also to represent Him. In this world, all Christians are to honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks a reason for the hope that is in them, yet they are to do it with gentleness and respect. Here I read 1 Peter 3 15. Indeed, Christians are to be salt in this world and they are to be light. And so, all Christians are to learn from Christ, they are to be his disciples, they are to be learners, but they are to learn knowing that they are also to be representatives of Christ here in this world. But with that said, we should not ignore the special and pronounced obligation that ministers of the Word of God have to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, nor should we gloss over the very special role that these twelve apostles played in the history of Christ's church. Their office, friends, was utterly unique. These twelve apostles, they sat at Jesus' feet and learned from Him personally and in the flesh. Their eyes beheld the miracles He performed. They watched Him heal the sick. They were in the boat with Him when He calmed the stormy sea. They were witnesses of His casting out of demons. They even watched Him raise the dead. Though it is true that all Christians are in a way called to be messengers or ambassadors for Christ, it would be a serious mistake to diminish the very special role that these apostles of Jesus played or to treat the office that they held as if it were common and ordinary. These twelve were named apostles and none other with the exception of the one who would replace Judas, who would betray him, and with the apostle Paul who was born in an untimely way. It was the twelve who were sent out first, brothers and sisters. Notice their number. There were twelve apostles. And those who are familiar with the Old Testament Scriptures will recognize the significance of this number. How many tribes were there in Old Covenant Israel? 
Uh, you would be right to say that there were 12 tribes in Old Covenant Israel. So when Christ selected 12 apostles, uh, the meaning was clear. These would be the foundation of the Israel of God under the Old Covenant. Also, you might remember the spies that were sent out by Moses as recorded in Numbers chapter 13. Uh, there were 12 who were sent out to spy out the land that was promised to Israel. Uh, these were to function as the tip of the spear, if you will. Now, things did not go so well uh, for the old covenant people of God. Uh, many of these spies, ten of them in fact, lacked faith. Only two came back believing that the Lord would give them the land. Uh, but nevertheless, the point remains. There were 12 spies that were sent out. These were to function as the tip of the spear. And these 12 apostles that Jesus named, they are both the foundation of the new covenant Israel of God, and they functioned as the tip of the spear with the inbreaking of the kingdom of God um, being inaugurated through them. Uh, they went out with the faith and power of Jesus, that Jesus provides he is the second and greater Joshua. So then the number 12 is significant. And it is also significant that these 12 were sent out first. If we turn over to Luke 10 in our Bibles, we will see that Jesus did not only send out the 12, but would later send out 72. Some manuscripts say 70. And these were sent out on a very similar mission. Uh, we will consider this text in detail when we come to it. But for now it is worth noting that it was not only the twelve who were sent, but many others also. The twelve were sent first, however, and the twelve were marked off as unique and special. They were designated apostles. But it would not be the twelve only who were sent out to preach the gospel of the kingdom, to heal and to cast out demons as a demonstration of the power of the kingdom of God. Other eyewitnesses would be sent out by our Lord too. The instructions given to both of these groups, first the twelve and then the seventy-two or, or seventy, uh, they were very similar. First, both groups were commissioned by Christ to heal and to cast out demons as they proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom of God. You may see Luke 9, 1-2 and Luke 10, 9. As I've said before, it was the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom uh, that was primary I've said this in previous sermons. It was the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom that was the primary activity of these. The healing and the casting out of demons was a demonstration that the kingdom of God was near. So the gospel of the kingdom was to be preached by these and the miracles performed by them, by the, by the twelve and then the seventy-two. This was a demonstration that the kingdom of God was near. Secondly, notice that both groups were instructed to take nothing for their journey on this first mission of theirs. To the twelve, Jesus said, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. That is Luke 9.3. And to the seventy-two, Jesus said, Go your way, behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and Greet no one on the road, that is Luke 10, 3-4. So on this initial mission, the apostles and the disciples of Jesus were to travel very light. They were to take no provisions. Thirdly, both groups were to trust in God's provision and protection as they relied on the hospitality of others. To the twelve, Christ said, And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. Uh, 
that is Luke 9, 4. And to the 72, Christ said, Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Fourthly, both groups were warned that not all would warmly receive them. Some would reject them. And they were not to be discouraged or derailed by this. To the twelve Christ said, And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And to the seventy-two Christ said, But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near I tell you, Jesus said, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. So as we focus our attention again on the sending of the twelve in Luke 9, we are told in verse 6 that the apostles departed and they went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. They went on their own on this first mission of theirs apart from Jesus It was time for them to fly the nest. It was time for them to sink or swim. And it must have been scary, don't you think, for them to go? But they did go. They flew the nest. They did swim in reliance upon God and Christ. This was the apostles' first mission. And before I move on to highlight the momentous nature of this mission, I think it is important to highlight and to stress its uniqueness. Here I wish to warn against interpreting this text as if it establishes the norm for ministers of the Word of God from that day forward. Yes, this mission was momentous, and by that I mean it was significant and influential in in setting the tone for and shaping the mission of the church moving forward. There are some timeless principles that we can learn from this first mission of the Apostles But I think it is also important to see that it was in some respects unusual and unique. The uniqueness of this first mission given to the apostles needs to be highlighted so that we do not err in treating this mission as if it is the standard or norm for the mission of the church from this point onward. Firstly, we must remember that the apostles were unique. And so too were the 72 or 70 For they were eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. These twelve apostles were an utterly unique group of men. Do you hear me stressing this point? I'm being repetitive, but it is for a reason. Yes, Judas was a traitor. Christ knew that from the beginning, by the way. And yes, Judas would be replaced by Matthias, as recorded in Acts 1.26. By the way, some think that Matthias must have been numbered among the 72 or the 70 who are mentioned in Luke 10. I think that's very likely, but hard to prove. And yes, Paul was appointed as an apostle by the resurrected and ascended Christ as one untimely born. That's the language of 1 Corinthians 15, 8. But with these exceptions, this group of 12 apostles was unique. After Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, was appointed, no other apostles were named. The office of apostle this must be understood, was temporary. It was temporary. 
It consisted of men who were appointed by Christ personally. All of them were eyewitnesses to His resurrection. Most of them walked with Christ very closely in His earthly ministry. The office of apostle was unique, and it was a temporary office within Christ's church. And I say this in part to stress that there is no apostolic succession that can be traced throughout the history of the church. Are you familiar with this view of apostolic succession? Maybe you've come across it. It is this idea that there were apostles in the days of Christ. He appointed twelve. Therefore, there must be apostles in every age of the church moving forward. And that the apostles then handed off the apostleship to other men who were apostles in their day and so on and so forth. But we say, no, there is no apostolic succession that can be traced throughout the history of the church. After the age of the apostles, the church was to be led by elders. They are also called bishops or pastors, and deacons. These are the two offices that continue in the church to this present day. But there is no office of apostle in the church today, for that office has ceased. There is no apostolic succession. The office of apostle was unique, and it was confined to the earliest days of the church. Many have erred on this point of doctrine. And it is through this error that many other errors have crept into the church. Uh, The Roman Catholics teach that there is a form of apostolic succession that can be traced through their bishops and the Pope. Yes, they will acknowledge that there was something foundational and unique about these original apostles who were eyewitnesses of Christ's resurrection. But they go on to teach a form of apostolic succession through the bishops. And it is through this error that the error regarding the Pope as the vicar of Christ on earth and his ability to speak authoritatively the Word of God has crept into the Roman system. Other groups claim apostolic succession too, the most prevalent in our time being certain Pentecostal groups. Some of these claim to have apostles ministering in their midst even still and speaking with a kind of divine authority. We say no to all forms of apostolic succession. These men and the office they held was unique and temporary. It does not matter if men are connected to them through birth or through the laying on of hands in ordination. What matters as it pertains to our connection to the apostles, brothers and sisters? What matters is this. We must faithfully teach what Christ, the apostles, and the prophets taught. And that we are faithful to administer the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper according to Christ's command. I might ask this question, what good is it if a man can demonstrate some external and worldly line of succession if his doctrine and practice deviate from the doctrine and practice taught by Christ and His apostles as recorded in the Holy Scriptures? Does it matter that we are connected to the apostles? Yes, but not through some succession of ordination, the laying on of hands. What matters is that we are connected to them and that we align with them, that we are built upon the foundation that they themselves have laid, that we teach what they taught, that we administer the sacraments according to their command. The point that I am making here is really a simple one. As we read our Bibles, we should not think that everything Christ and the apostles did is to be done by us, or that every power and authority they possessed will be possessed by us. Why? Because Christ and His apostles were in some ways unique. They were in a class all their own. 
And this is why Paul describes the church as being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That is Ephesians 2, 18-22. It's such an important text. As Christ describes the church, he says that the church has a foundation. And what is the foundation of the church, metaphorically speaking? What is the foundation of the building of the church, the foundation of the temple, which is the church? It is the apostles and prophets, with Christ being the cornerstone. We should not expect there to be apostles and prophets present in the church in a continuous manner. No, they are the foundation of the church, and it is upon them that the church is built up. You, brothers and sisters, are the living stones of God's temple, and you are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. What matters is that we align ourselves with this foundation that God has laid. A building has one foundation. It is upon the foundation that the structure is built up, Christ, the apostles, and the prophets are the foundation of the church. Those who believe in their word and align with their word are the living stones out of which the church of God is built up from generation to generation. So then the apostles were a unique group of men. Secondly, we must remember that the power and authority to cast out demons and to heal was uniquely granted to these apostles. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases, and He sent them out to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and to heal. And the same observation could be made regarding the 72 that are mentioned in Luke 10. They too were given this power and authority to heal and to cast out demons, and they were sent forth to preach the kingdom of God. If the apostolic office was temporary, we should not be surprised then that the miraculous sign gifts that were granted to these were temporary too. That there were others alive in this age of the apostles with miraculous sign gifts is undeniable. The New Testament scriptures do speak of this, but the principle still applies. In these early days of the church, in the days of Christ, and in the days of His apostles, when the foundation of the church was being laid, power and authority was granted to some to heal and to cast out demons, as a sign that the kingdom of God was now present with power. But it would be a terrible mistake to assume that this power and authority to cast out demons and to heal would be present within the church always. Thirdly, we must recognize that the instructions given to the apostles and later to the 72 concerning their ministry were unique to this moment in time. I mention this because some may look upon this text and conclude that ministers of the Word must never own property, but must always wander about with no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and with only one tunic, relying only on the hospitality of others. Can you see how the text could be read in that way? Well, look at what Christ did with His original apostles. He sent them out in this way, so it must be that ministers of the Word of God in every age are to behave in the same manner, but we know that this is not the case. For in Luke 22, verse 35, we find Christ speaking to His apostles again. And listen to what He says to them at this later time. He says, When I sent you out with no money bag, or knapsack, or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, But now 
Let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. Now we will consider this passage in Luke 22, 35-38 in detail at a later time. But here I am simply contrasting it with the one we are reading now in Luke 9. Brothers and sisters, not only am I doing this in order to teach you the truth about Luke 9, but I'm also trying to teach you proper methods of interpretation. It is wrong for us to read one text of Scripture in isolation from the other and to draw conclusions from it that are inconsistent with the other passages. Here in Luke 22, we see that Christ gives His disciples totally different instructions. Remember when I sent you out with no money? Now you take money with you. Remember when I sent you out without a change of clothes? Now pack your bags. Remember when I sent you out without a staff? Now sell a cloak and buy a sword. And so we see that this mission that these these apostles of Jesus were sent on, as recorded in Luke 9, it was unique in some ways. This was a special mission that they were sent out upon. This was for them a time of testing. It was for them a time of training. By going out with no supplies and in utter dependence on those who would show them hospitality, these apostles learned a very valuable lesson. They learned to fully rely upon God for protection and provision. And this was a valuable lesson for them to learn indeed. It would be a mistake, however, to conclude that this arrangement was to be the norm. So I have acknowledged the uniqueness of this first mission of the apostles. Let us now consider the momentousness of this mission. And here I wish to emphasize the timeless lessons that were taught to the apostles and through them to us in this first mission of theirs. Firstly, the apostles of Jesus learned through this experience that they would not only be learners of Jesus, but His ambassadors too. Christ had called them not only to sit at His feet to learn, but to in due time be sent out to proclaim the same gospel of the kingdom that He proclaimed. And so it is for the church in every age. Brothers and sisters, we assemble each Lord's Day to learn from the Word of Christ. And why do we learn? So that we might keep these truths to ourselves? Well, they are good for us, are they not? Uh, They do help us in many ways. They bring us comfort. They bring us encouragement. The Word of God uh, does strengthen us individually. But we should not forget that as God's people, we are to share this truth with others. Uh, After we assemble together on the Lord's Day, we are sent out into the world. And there we are to testify to the goodness and grace of God. When Christ sent out the twelve initially, it was but a foretaste of the great commission that He would give to them after He died on the cross and rose from the dead and before He ascended. This little mission here in Luke chapter 9, it was but a foretaste of that great commission that would be given to the apostles after the resurrection of Christ from the dead. He would appear to them in His resurrection and say, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is Matthew 28, 18-20. In Acts 1, 8, 
We hear Christ speak to the disciples saying, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And in Mark chapter 16, the Great Commission sounds like this. Afterward, Jesus appeared to the eleven themselves. Uh, Judas had betrayed him and had not yet been replaced. As they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after He had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. By the way, some have thought that this ending of Mark teaches that the miraculous sign gifts will always be present within the church. But the text says no such thing. Instead, it seems to limit the miraculous sign gifts to the apostles, to the eleven now that Judas had fallen. These were the ones who were moved from unbelief to belief. These were the ones who went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. These miraculous sign gifts seem to be confined to the to the, to the apostles of Jesus and to other eyewitnesses as well. But the main observation I am making here is that the sending out of the twelve in Luke 9 was in preparation for a much greater commissioning yet to come, namely the great commission that would be issued by Christ to His church through His apostles after He rose from the grave and before He ascended. Brothers and sisters, Do you view yourself as one who has been commissioned? Do you view yourself in this way? If you are a disciple of Jesus, you are a follower or learner of Jesus. I'm sure you view yourself in this way. I am a follower of Christ. I am a disciple of His. I am a learner. I am a follower of Jesus. But disciples of Jesus are also sent... And no, I am not saying that every Christian is called by God to go somewhere other than here. And neither am I saying that every Christian is called to be a minister of the Word of God in the same way that the apostles were or that pastors are. We all have gifts and callings that differ from one another. But together, as the church, we are on mission Together we are called by Christ to make disciples of all nations, to baptize and to teach. We do not all have the same role to play, but we do share the same mission. It is the great commission that Christ gave to His disciples, of which the little mission of Luke 9 was but a foretaste. And so I might ask you, how are you contributing to the accomplishment of this mission? Are you giving of your time, your treasures, your unique talents, to help the church accomplish the mission that Christ has given to her through these apostles of His. The second timeless lesson taught to the apostles and to us through them in this first mission of theirs was that their work 
would involve the overthrow of Satan's kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom of God. This was a very valuable mission, uh, lesson that these apostles learned. Let me state it to you again. Their work would involve the overthrow of Satan's kingdom and the establishment of God's kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom of God. I have a question for you. You need not answer. I'll answer it also. But why were the apostles given power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases? Why were they given this power and authority? Why were they granted the power and authority to cast out demons and to cure diseases? The answer is this. These miracles that they were empowered to perform were a demonstration or a sign that the kingdom of God was present with power and that the kingdom of Satan was now being overthrown. I might ask you another question. How is the kingdom of God advanced? And how is the kingdom of Satan overthrown? Answer, it is not through the casting out of demons or through the healing of diseases, but by the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom of God, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is how the kingdom is advanced. The kingdom of God is advanced. And this is how the kingdom of Satan is overthrown. It is through the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. Notice our text says that Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And He sent them out to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God and to heal. Why did He send them out? To proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God. And they went out with this power to cast out demons and to heal. And in verse 6 we read, And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing everywhere. So then two activities are mentioned. One, the apostles were sent out to preach. Two, they were sent out to preach with the power and authority to perform these miracles, namely to cast out demons and to heal the sick. Here is another question for you. What is the relationship between these two activities? The activity of preaching and the performance of these miraculous deeds. What is the relationship between these two activities? Answer, the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom of God is primary. It is the permanent mission of the church. It is the means through which the kingdom of God is advanced. It is the means through which the kingdom of Satan is overthrown. Sinners are rescued from the kingdom of darkness and they are ushered into the kingdom of light through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ as the Spirit works. The Scriptures are very clear about all of this. The preaching of the gospel of the kingdom of God is the primary and permanent mission of the church. These miraculous deeds that were performed by Christ, His apostles and other disciples, of His who were eyewitnesses to His life, death, and resurrection. They function as signs. Do you hear that? These miracles functioned as signs. They were a visible demonstration that the kingdom of God was present with power, that it was expanding, and that the kingdom of Satan was being overthrown. What was the relationship between the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom and these miracles? The miracles confirmed the validity of the preaching. The miracles demonstrated visibly the presence 
of the kingdom of God and the overthrow of the kingdom of Satan, which are impossible to perceive with our natural senses. You know, there is an interesting text in Luke 11. We will come to it eventually in our study of this gospel, but I'll mention it briefly now. There we are told of Jesus casting out another demon. People could not deny that He was doing this work. And so they had to come up with a way to explain the miracles He performed. They did not all believe upon Christ. Those who did not believe upon Him had to come up with some way of explaining away the miraculous deeds that He performed. And so some who did not believe in Him attributed His work to Satan, saying, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of the demons, that is Luke eleven fifteen, And Christ responded saying, uh, these are my words, that's ridiculous, and now quoting Christ, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, that is Luke eleven seventeen through 18. Uh, you get his argument here. This is a ridiculous thing you're saying. How could I be casting out demons by the power of Satan? That would indicate a divided kingdom and the destruction of uh, the kingdom of Satan in that way. But a little later he said, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Did you hear it? He's saying, If it is by the power of God that I cast these demons out, And if it is by the power and authority of His kingdom, then this is evidence that the kingdom of God has come upon you. And that indeed is the purpose of these miraculous deeds, of these healings, and of these casting out of demons. It's a demonstration that the kingdom of God has come now with power. That is the argument that Christ Himself made. That was the reason He gave to these miraculous deeds that He and His apostles performed. It was a demonstration of the fact that the kingdom of God was now present with power. The passage I read from the end of Mark also teaches this relationship between the preaching of the apostles and the miracles they performed. Mark 16.20 says, And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Do you hear it? These signs that they performed, these miraculous deeds that they did, uh, they were meant to confirm the message that they preached. That is to say, the message of the gospel of the kingdom. And here in Mark 16, the miracles are called signs. And it is said that the purpose of these signs was to confirm the message they proclaimed. Again, namely, the gospel of the kingdom of God. Nowhere is this relationship between the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom and the miracles performed by Christ and His apostles more clear than in the gospel of John, where the miracles of Jesus are often referred to as signs. I won't read you all of the texts where the word sign appears in John's Gospel. There are many. I'll give you just a sampling of them now. John 2.11 This, the first of His signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested His glory and His disciples believed in Him. This is a reference to that sign of turning water to wine. It was a miracle that He performed, but it is referred to as a sign. John 2.23 Now when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in His name when they saw the signs that He was doing. 
John 3, 2, This man came to Jesus by night, Nicodemus, and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. John 6, 2, And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So his healing of the sick is referred to as a sign. John 6.14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is come into the world. So the miracle that he performed convinced some that Jesus was no ordinary man, but was the prophet, the Messiah, who was to come. John 7.31, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? In other words, if he's not the Messiah, I don't know who will be. Look at all of the signs he is performing. He must be the Christ. He must be the Messiah. John 9.16, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. He did keep the Sabbath, just not according to their customs. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division amongst him. John 11.47, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do for this man performs many signs? Two more verses quickly. John 12, 18. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. And then John 20, verse 30. Now Jesus, John says, did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. And he goes on to say, If they were all written down, All the libraries in the world could not contain the record of them. The point I am making is this. Signs are never the main thing. Signs point to the main thing, though. And so it was with the miracles that Christ, His apostles, and some of His other disciples performed. The miracles were not the main thing. The gospel of the kingdom was the main thing. But the miracles were signs which pointed to the main thing, the gospel of the kingdom, to confirm that the message was true. That was the purpose of these miraculous deeds that Christ performed, and He gave power and authority to His apostles so that they might perform these miracles too, to confirm their message. So I have said that the second timeless lesson taught to the apostles and to us through them in this first mission of theirs was that their work would involve the overthrow of Satan's kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom of God. Indeed, when Christ commissioned His apostles in that great commission, the great and final commission that He gave before His ascension, He did not say, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and cast out demons and heal the sick. He did not say this. No, this was never the primary mission. Instead, He commissioned His apostles to go and to make disciples of all nations. And how is this done, brothers and sisters? It is done through the preaching of the gospel. And they were also commissioned to baptize these new disciples of Jesus and to teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded. This is how Christ's kingdom is expanded. And this is how Christ's kingdom is destroyed. Through the preaching of the Word of God and through the administration of the sacraments of baptism and Lord's Supper. I asked you earlier, do you see yourself as if on mission? You are. For we are on mission together. This great commission that Christ gave to His apostles, it belongs to all of us, the church. Yes, we're gifted differently. We're called to different things. But it is our commission together. And I might ask you a follow-up question, therefore. Do you see this work as being about the expansion of God's kingdom on earth today? 
and the overthrow of Satan's kingdom even now. Yes, that is the work we are to do. We are to expand Christ's kingdom through the preaching of the gospel, through the administration of the sacraments. And it is in this way that, king, that, that the kingdom of Satan, this kingdom of darkness, is overthrown. The miracles performed by Christ's apostles and some of His first disciples confirmed that the gospel of the kingdom they preached was true. That the, gospel, that the kingdom of God was really present with power as they claimed. The third timeless lesson taught to the apostles and to us through them in this first momentous mission of theirs was that they would need to go forth with the power that God supplies, trusting ever in His provision. The apostles of Christ learned a powerful lesson as they went forth with no money and with no supplies, not even a knapsack or a change of clothes. What did they learn in this first mission of theirs except to to trust in God? And so too, we must trust in God. Even if we live in homes of our own and have money in the bank and food in the pantry, we must trust not in ourselves, but in the Lord. And the concluding remark in the Great Commission of Matthew 28 reminds us of this too. For there Christ says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Why did He say this? Except to encourage His people to go forward in faith, knowing that Christ is with us, that He will provide for our needs, He will keep us according to His will. The fourth and final timeless truth taught to the apostles and to us through them in this first momentous mission of theirs is that not all would receive their word. Many would reject them. This was not to discourage them. And neither should it discourage us. This is an important lesson for us to learn, brothers and sisters. We must be faithful to proclaim Christ. Christ must be proclaimed from this pulpit. It must be, Christ must be proclaimed out in the world. You, yourselves, must be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you. But do not be surprised, do not be discouraged, when men reject this glorious message that you bring to them. Uh, They rejected Christ, many did, and many rejected the apostles too. Christ told His apostles to shake off the dust from their feet as a testimony against those who rejected their word, and to go on to the next town, proclaiming the gospel of peace to all who would listen. And we must do the same, brothers and sisters. We must be faithful to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God to all who will listen. And yes, we are to leave the results to God and to trust that He will accomplish all of His purposes. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we thank You for this text. And though it is in many ways a unique passage, unique to those original apostles of Christ, Lord, we do ask that You would help us to learn from it. I pray that we would be faithful to accomplish the mission that You have given to us through these apostles as the church. Lord, I pray that in the coming year, We would be more faithful than we have been in years past to speak of Christ, to proclaim this marvelous gospel, to give a reason for the hope that is in us. And we trust that you, O God, will indeed save sinners. You will call your elect to yourself by the word and by the working of your spirit. Give us this confidence, give us this faith, and help us to be faithful. In the name of Christ we pray. And all of God's people say,